0: I'm really a mechanistic scientist. you know, I really want to understand the biological basis of these disorders. and so we're really studying that that molecular clock, which is in every single cell, pretty much of the entire brain, the entire body. These are it's made up of genes and that basically they're called transcription factors and they control the expression of other genes. And it just so happens that these particular genes will cycle, over the course of 24 hours in their their function. And that leads to the expression of a whole bunch of other genes that have a 24 hour rhythm. So that's how rhythms are controlled in the cell
2: I have uh, Dr. Colleen McClung, she's a professor of psychiatry and clinical and translational science at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Medicine. She's also director of the NIDA-funded NIH Center for Adolescent Reward, Rhythms, and Sleep. The acronym is C-A-R-R-S. So we're going to talk about uh, her work on circadian rhythms and uh, ancillary topics. So Colleen, thanks so much for coming. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: You're speaking to a person that has a very weird circadian rhythm, so hopefully that'll be of interest to you as we go. Just because you study it, I, I usually go to bed at four a.m. and get up at noon, and I've been doing so for like 25 years. So, oh wow, just to start you off with, like, oh my god, <laughs> but, okay. Tell me about your a bit about your history, and then uh, what attracts you to to work on circadian rhythms and clocks and stuff like that.
0: Sure. So I got my PhD in um, neuroscience back in a long time ago, back in the 1990s. And I was at the University of Virginia. And we were actually the PhDs in biology, but we studied neuroscience. And I happened to be in a department that had this strong foundation for circadian rhythm research. And so I was really interested in neuroscience, and I was interested in behavior or the regulation of behavior. But then During graduate school, I was sort of surrounded by people who studied circadian rhythms. And so I got really interested in them during that time and then continued to sort of try to understand how circadian rhythms were connected to psychiatric disease as I went through my postdoc and then eventually starting my lab. And and the more that I get into it, the more I realized how important circadian rhythms and sleep are to pretty much every disease, not just psychiatric diseases, but but nearly everything really, circadian yeah. rhythms, sleep are central to them.
2: Well, on a biological level, on a molecular level, what does a clock look like that creates a rhythm in our body? I would guess there's a lot of biological clocks. I don't know how deep you've gotten into it, but do you know literally the biochemistry of it or more of the effects of it?
0: I'm really a mechanistic scientist. You know, I really want to understand the biological basis of these disorders. And so, we're really studying that that molecular clock, which is in every single cell, pretty much of the entire brain, the entire body. These are, it's made up of genes and that basically they're called transcription factors and they control the expression of other genes. And it just so happens that these particular genes will cycle over the course of 24 hours in their their function. And that leads to the expression of a whole bunch of other genes that have a 24-hour rhythm. And so that's how rhythms are controlled in the cell. And then there's a region of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SCN, which is kind of like the conductor of the orchestra of rhythms that go on throughout the brain and throughout the body. And so without the SCN, all of these clocks in each individual cell would kind of run on its own time, but the SCN kind of keeps it like a conductor of an orchestra, keeps it, it all in time and all in sync. And does so, it
2: do that through, uh, through nervous system impulses or how do you think it does it? Chemical yeah, so, signals?
0: yeah, it does it through a variety of mechanisms, including hormone um, regulation. So you might've heard of the hormone melatonin. So one of the things that, that the SCN does is control the timing of melatonin release from the pineal gland every night to kind of initiate sleep. It also controls cortisol in the the blood and that will help people to wake up. And so it goes, it does it through hormones, but then it also controls body temperature, which can set some of the organs in the body. And it does it in the brain through direct projections to different brain regions and also through some other signaling mechanisms. So it does it in a variety of ways.
2: Yeah, when you mentioned the DNA cycling, are there, temporary, are there temporary epigenetic marks that occur that allow for different expression at different points in the circadian rhythm process?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So there's, a, I could get really deep into this if you want
2: me to, but there's. Yeah, okay, a little bit deeper.
0: <laughs> there's, so the DNA, you know, it's wound around these proteins called histones. And, um, And so this is how all our DNA gets packaged into, you know, tightly into cells, into the nucleus. And so at certain times of day, some of that um, DNA is open or it's closed, you know, depending on what needs to happen at different times of day. So you might need genes to be um, expressed that are involved in mitochondrial function, let's say, something to help energy of the cell and so then a the DNA might be open for those particular genes, and that's through modification of those histone proteins where they get different kinds of post-translational modifications on them, like acetylation, methylation, et cetera, and, um, and it just allows these um, different genes to get transcribed at different times of day.
2: What about the, uh, the act of falling asleep? Has anyone very closely studied that? Are there certain again, epigenetic changes that are required for someone to fall asleep or, you know, what happens in this process?
0: Yeah. So sleep is is controlled by two different processes, basically. So there's, um, there's a circadian process, which kind of controls the timing of sleep. And so, as I mentioned, um, melatonin will be released in the evening to kind of get the brain prepared for sleep, but it doesn't really make you fall asleep. And then there's, um, There's also the homeostatic sleep drive. So depending on how tired you are from the day, from, you know, and also the sleep you got the night before, you have that homeostatic sleep drive and both of them together. So the kind of the timing, the circadian mechanism, and this what's called process S, this homeostatic sleep drive, they sort of work in combination to make you fall asleep. And then, you know, there's certain parts of the brain that, that have different peptides and neurotransmitters. That are involved in, in helping you fall asleep. And then there's other parts of the brain and different neurotransmitters that are involved in waking you
2: up. Again, has anyone looked at, um, you know, some people claim they fall asleep within a minute and some people it takes an hour. But again, the act of falling asleep, has anyone divided it up into specific stages with biochemical signatures? Like, has anyone micro observed or observed again on a micro level or a very small step level, temporal level, what happens when someone falls asleep?
0: Well, certainly people have done recordings of the brain when people fall asleep, right? So they do EEG recordings where you can record the different brain waves that are happening as somebody is falling asleep. And the brain will transition into these from these sort of like low amplitude high frequency waves to these kind of slow waves as people fall asleep and so that's been well documented for a long time and you know and there's also different kind of biochemical things that happen when people fall asleep but it's really thought to be kind of like a switch like a light switch you know you're either asleep or you're not asleep this is not really what we study we're not so much sleep researchers per se we're more circadian researchers but but the sleep cycle obviously is controlled you know in some ways by the circadian system
2: including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. When does the entrainment happen? Again, I know you don't study sleep. How does the synchronization occur? Is it a cascade that starts in the SCN? and then if affects certain tissues first or certain cells or certain parts of cells first and then the mm-hmm. rest cascade like what happens first what happens next 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 and what's the last thing let's say to get entrained can anyone tell the orchestration of this
0: yeah yeah so so the main entrainer of circadian rhythms is light and so but you know the light will hit your eye and in the retina there are some uh, photoreceptors called melanopsin receptors and they are the ones that are particularly responsive to blue wavelengths of light. And they project directly back to the SCN. And so you have these projection cells. Um, so the light will hit the eye. It activates melanopsin. The melanopsin will then activate cells in, in the SCN. And that will help entrain the SCN to light. And then once that happens, then that sends signals through the SCN from sort of the the core of the SCN to the shell of the SCN. And then from there, that will help entrain that endogenous pacemaker. And from there, then it will send out projections and signals through either direct neural projections. So the SCN is at the base of the hypothalamus. And so the connections it's making first are all within the hypothalamus, and then from the hypothalamus, then it can go to other regions of the brain, or it can send signals, like I said, to the pineal gland or to other, uh, the adrenal glands, other places to have changes in hormones be signaled to help reset the rest of the body.
2: So it's the uh, the lack of light. Does that start this whole process? For sleep?
0: Yeah, no, for sleep, yeah, it's, but the lack of light can help to to produce melatonin and and that can control the timing of it. In terms of the homeostatic sleep drive, though, that has no impact at all, really. Light doesn't affect it or dark doesn't affect it. It's just how tired are you, right? So, and that will um, win out over circadian timing. So if you're really tired, you can take a nap in the middle of the day. And that's really independent of this circadian
2: entrainment. So there's really these two processes that are controlling when you fall asleep. Well, I've heard when people talk about caffeine. They talk about adenosine receptors and caffeine blocking the, uh, you know, the the adenosine finding its docking point. So how much of that correlates with, again, like you said, overwhelming the circadian rhythm or contributing to sleep drive?
0: Yeah, adenosine is the biggest metabolite that controls sleep. So... And it's a byproduct of energy production in the brain. And so it's like as your brain, you know, gets more tired, more tired, more tired, you have adenosine, you know, that builds up and that will help to promote sleep as well. And that, that's not really connected so much to the circadian system. You know, as I said, that's more of that homeostatic sleep
2: drive. And so you can block that with with caffeine and that'll help to keep you awake. Okay. In our bodies, is it just in the eyes that we have receptors that govern the circadian clock, or do we have them also all over our skin? You know, light receptors <laughs> that would, that would influence and signal our circadian rhythms to change.
0: Yeah. That's been controversial. There were a couple of papers a while ago that suggested that there were these sort of photoreceptors in the skin and. Behind the knee, um, it's sort of been proven not to be true, um, but it's still a little bit controversial. So light, prim- I mean, the main way that light is entraining is is definitely through the eye. But there's other things that can entrain the circadian clock too, like meal timing. So if you eat your meals at the same time of day every day, that can be almost as as potent a circadian entrainer as light, and particularly in the in the periphery your meal times will impact your circadian system more so actually than than light does. So there there are other things that can can set those rhythms besides light. But whether or not there's photoreceptors and that are active and other like in the skin, it's probably not, but it is a little bit controversial.
2: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I've heard um, you know, some people again, I know this goes back to sleep, but I can't really separate the two. <laughs> um, according to my level of knowledge you know uh in the morning getting morning sun appears to regulate and set the circadian rhythm for the day you know so far as that i've heard from sleep researchers is that true or you know when you and the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep what factors are most influencing your circadian rhythm to to cycle through at its at its pace it's telling?
0: Yeah, definitely morning light is is the biggest one that will really um, help to set your rhythms for the rest of the day. If you can get out and get like bright light in the morning, especially natural light, that's going to be really um, beneficial at kind of setting your rhythms for the day. Also exercise, if you go out and exercise in the morning, that will help to to get everything going also to to set your rhythms through the day. Meal times, as I mentioned, is another big one. There are other things that can entrain circadian clocks that aren't as good, like drugs of abuse, things like that, or can set them off, like things like caffeine can mess up your rhythms a little bit, or alcohol because you're not sleeping as much. But so there's things that can really like set your rhythms strongly, like like having consistent wake up time, sun in the morning, exercise. Beal timing and then some things that can also set you like bright light in the evening if people are on their on their cell phones or something, you know, before they go to bed, that's suppressing your melatonin and not allowing you to go to sleep. So yeah, so there's things that kind of can environmentally either set the clock or mess with the clock.
2: Well, how does how does light Affect the clock again? Has anyone looked step by step? So you said morning sun. So morning sun has a different color temperature than noon or afternoon sun. Different. it's more. It's
0: more, yeah, right. it's more about the. It's more about the timing of the light. It's not that the morning sun is any different. It's just that it the timing of sunlight in the morning is going to help set your rhythms for the day and really entrain your rhythms for that day.
2: So it's not really about well, well, people. People talk about blue light at night versus the absence yes. of it's better for you. So. But again, the color temperature of the sun changes throughout the day. So do you think that certain wavelengths, certain frequencies of light have more or less of an effect on our circadian rhythms and our clock?
0: Yeah, so blue light, definitely. So the melanopsin receptor that I talked about, it's it's very responsive to blue light. And so at night, yeah, you definitely want to avoid any of that blue light that comes from screens and such the sun throughout the day you know it's bright enough and it has such a full spectrum that you're going to get the blue light through that and it's so bright that it's probably you know the difference between morning or afternoon sun in terms of the amount of blue light might be subtly different but i don't know if it's going to be enough to affect your your receptors but but that's the type of light you want if you if you want to entrain artificially or if you don't want to disrupt your clock you can either add blue light or block blue light. So bright light therapy in the morning that people use for treatment of things like seasonal affective disorder, you can either use like full spectrum light
2: or you can use just blue light. And thinking about the clock action, is there any mechanism like, uh, I don't know, again, it's crude, like an internal hourglass where grains of sand, the equivalent being the accumulation of certain, you know, chemicals or enzymes cause the clock to move forward, cause the clock to move faster or slower or change, you know, where it is in the cycle? Like, are there any, again, bio, uh, biochemical accumulations of certain things that affect how the clock runs?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. There's The clock is very in tune with your cellular metabolic processes. So depending on how your cells are running, this could affect the clock either By slowing it down or speeding it up a little bit, there's, and you know, those are mostly through things that are have to do with mitochondrial function and, you know, again, oxidative stress and byproducts of energy um, production that can sort of change the clock a little bit in certain cells in particular ways. But yeah, there's other, I mean, other artificial things can also change the way that make the clock run a little bit faster or run a little bit slower certain drugs of abuse or certain medications can can really change the way that the clock is functioning. So for example, sorry, I was just gonna say, for example, if you take something like if you, you know, I study psychiatric disease. So if somebody takes something like lithium for bipolar disorder, that's going to slow the clock down, that makes the clock run slower. So drugs like that, you know, medications can, can have an effect on the clock.
2: Okay. So, you know, sorry, I get dragging you through sleep over and over, but um, tell me about <laughs> your your research and, and I'll ask more pointed questions about the specific questions you're trying to answer in regards. Sure.
0: To yeah. So we study the molecular basis of psychiatric disorders and we're primarily interested in uh, bipolar disorder, substance use disorder, and and schizophrenia. And some, we also do a little bit of work on major depression. So we're really, and you know focused on how circadian rhythms and circadian genes at a at a very basic level at a molecular level are controlling mood and controlling reward and anxiety and things like that 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 are disrupted in these psychiatric disorders and so that's that's really the kinds of questions that our lab is trying to answer and then we're trying to use that knowledge to make to design better treatments where we can then target circadian rhythms in particular ways to to be therapeutic we use a variety of, of models in our lab so we use mouse models we use cell culture models we also use human postmortem brain and in our center that you mentioned we do some clinical studies so that's sort of overall picture of what our lab does
2: Right. so what questions are you trying to answer is, is how circadian rhythms are correlated with these various diseases or you know what are your specific research research questions
0: No, we're really not, I mean, so interested in the correlations as much as the mechanisms. So we're trying to understand, you know, if someone has a disruption to, let's say, one of the core circadian genes, like, what is that going to do in their brain that could contribute to these psychiatric disorders? So we're really trying to look at a very, you know, molecular mechanistic level and, you know what these genes do, how they're functioning. You know, we've known for a long time these disorders are, are associated with disruptions in circadian rhythms and sleep. But, you know, we don't really know exactly, you know, how that contributes to the disease and then, you know, how we can use that knowledge to develop better treatments.
2: Okay. Um, well, mechanistically, I don't know, which which is the easiest disorder or the disorder in which you know the most about what's going on? you know, biochemically or mechanistically? Which one of them is, uh, again, do you know most?
0: Um, We we probably know the most about bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder, um, in terms of its association with circadian rhythms, bipolar disorder is a disease where people have periods of Depression and periods of mania, you know, which are, are sort of opposing each other, where they have, you know, these really, you know, times when they feel lots of energy and racing thoughts, and sometimes psychosis and things like that, and then t- periods of time where they're very depressed and can't get out of bed, and then they'll have times in between that are called euthymia, or you know, where they have just sort of a a more stable mood. And it's become kind of apparent over the years that this is really a disorder that very much is associated with changes in energy state, you know, between the manic phases and the depressive phases. And the thing that will set off these episodes more than anything else is a change to your sleep-wake cycle. So someone may be going along fine and then they work a different shift or they travel overseas or they do something like this. And that's what will really set people off into these episodes. People also, a lot of times with bipolar disorder, have seasonal patterns where they'll have more mania in the spring and summer and more, uh, depression in the fall and winter. And so a lot has been characterized in terms of like how circadian rhythms are disrupted or how they might contribute to to bipolar disorder. And so we've been really very interested in trying to understand those mechanisms.
2: What happens in the manic phase versus the depressed phase? Uh, manic, I heard people don't sleep well at all. So what's the clock?
0: Yeah, people don't sleep hardly at all when they're in the manic phase. Sometimes people will go for days, without sleeping. And so, and that is the complete opposite in depression where people will just, it's like, it takes all their energy to get out of bed and, you know, to, to do anything but sleep. So they're very opposite each other, which is really fascinating. And so again, we, because the circadian system is so, so intimately tied to cellular metabolism, cellular energy, you know, you can imagine that these genes could be really centrally involved in controlling that switch and energy state where you're either like have too much energy and you, have, you don't feel like you need to sleep or you have too little where you feel like all you all you want to do is sleep, all you can do is sleep.
2: Well, are you able to look at uh, metagenomics, you know, like or I don't know if that's the right term. I know that's usually associated with bacteria, et cetera. But can you characterize the epigenetic changes when someone's in manic Versus depressed phase. And perhaps it's those pile up of marks or absence of them that's driving this behavior. You know, I can't sleep or I want to sleep all the time.
0: You mean in the blood or something like that?
2: Yes. Yeah. Maybe there's change in the SCN. Maybe there's change in uh, some target tissues instead. Maybe body You know, but maybe that's that's what's causing it.
0: Unfortunately, you know, a lot of our um, studies that we do don't know, well, so it's very difficult to get people into clinical studies, first of all, like in a specific state, like catch them in that manic state or catch them in that depressive state. And then the postmortem studies that we do, we don't know if the person when they died, had was manic at the time or was depressed at the time. And so it makes those kinds of studies very challenging to try to catch exactly what's happening either in the blood in a living person or in the brain of a, you know, of a dead person, because it's really difficult to catch those those specific states, unfortunately.
2: Are you able to get specific cadavers of people that the medical record said they had pi- bipolar disorder?
0: Yes, but we don't know what state they were in at the time that they died. So
2: is there any correlation or is there no. data that you guys can't get?
0: Not really, no, you know, because people might commit suicide or something like that in either phase. And so it's, yeah, unfortunately, it's just a limitation of using post-mortem tissue for analysis is that you often don't have a lot of information about what was going on with that person right before they died.
2: Well, what about a blood draw? You know, could you do a cohort of people with bipolar disorder that are open to being, you know, to doing blood draws when they're either manic or depressed?
0: Um, I mean, that's not something our lab would do because we don't we don't really do clinical work like that. But it's possible, but it would be hard to know if what you're seeing in the blood, you know, would correlate with what's going on in the regions of the brain that are really interesting, you know, in terms of mood regulation or state, you know, switching. And so people are trying to you know, find biomarkers in the blood using a variety of techniques. Uh, mostly, they wanted you know it to be something that's a very quick kind of test that you could do a laboratory setting you know in a hospital to really have some kind of better diagnosis of bipolar disorder so it's not as much as much about states but it's more more of the biomarker work is about getting an appropriate diagnosis because it can often take up to 10 years for somebody to get an appropriate diagnosis of bipolar disorder and so most of the biomarker work has been kind of in that arena
2: Well, what about just uh, a regular subject? You know, if I'm in a hospital, let's say, and I have uh, a line in my arm, you know, they'll push fluids into me and some of it happens while I sleep. But what about being able to do uh, blood draws, you know, before when a person's awake throughout the day as they're sleeping, if that could be accomplished and look for biomarkers, then maybe you can get a regular pattern of, okay, in normal sleep, uh, this is what we see uh, an increase and a decrease in and maybe then that could be used to look for signals.
0: Yeah, maybe potentially. Like I said, that's not the sort of research that we do, but um, you know, it might be possible if they
2: got enough subjects uh, to do something like that. How do you um, imagine that you're going to be able to discern, you know, what's going on with the clock of people that uh, you know have bipolar disorder, for instance, or schizophrenia or any other disorder?
0: Yeah, so we've used mostly gene expression studies and so we've been doing this really interesting approach with our postmortem brains where if we know the person's time of death and they know we know their date of death and the place of death, we can calculate what's called a zeitgeber time and we can order our brain samples across a 24-hour day basically based on when the person died and Using that, we can look across a population at gene expression in different parts of the brain. And this has been actually really, really useful to be able to look at rhythms in gene expression, individual people or in individual groups of people, I should say, and in specific brain regions. So we've done this in people with schizophrenia, uh, people with psychosis, people with bipolar disorder. We just sequenced a large cohort of major depression. So... Doing this, we're able to really look at molecular rhythms in the postmortem brain in subjects with these disorders. But it's at a population
2: level. Oh, so what's observed so far from these experiments?
0: Yeah, so we've had some really interesting findings. We've done most of our work in schizophrenia, actually. So schizophrenia, obviously, is a it's a psychotic disorder where people have you know hallucinations and delusions and things like that. They also have cognitive problems problems with working memory and other sorts of cognitive problems. And so, but we've been sequencing mostly from regions of the brain that are either involved in sort of the cognitive aspects, so regions of the prefrontal cortex, or involved in the psychosis aspects, so mostly in striatal regions. And and we found these really interesting changes, particularly in um, genes related to mitochondrial function, where... We see a real change in the in the rhythms of these genes and and a shift in the timing of the rhythms of these genes, uh, particularly in the cortical regions. Such that it seems like perhaps they have energy related gene expression at the wrong time of day. So normally people will sort of have these changes in mitochondrial related genes that occur at transition points. So when like maybe when you're waking up and getting going, or when you're kind of winding down, going to sleep. But people with schizophrenia tend to have these um, these genes peak at a completely different time of day, like in the middle of the day and the middle of the night. And so this could definitely impact the way that their brain is is functioning. And this is in cortical regions. And so that's one of the, the really interesting things we've found. We've also found a loss of rhythmicity in a lot of genes associated with kind of neuronal repair and neuronal growth and things like that. And so that can also contribute to to the disease. So that that was one of our like really um interesting findings. So was this this change in these mitochondrial related rhythms.
2: So what does that suggest? Supplementation to help someone sleep when they can't? Uh, you know, what would you do with this? Well, it's not really about, to help
0: somebody. Yeah, it's not really about sleep. It's more about, you know, like helping their um rhythms to shift in a way where they would be able to, you know, have that that energy demand when it's most needed. So, um, you know, if this, and this is gene, these are gene expression studies. So we don't know what's going on at the protein level. We don't know what's going on at the cellular level in terms of, of metabolism or, or energy production, but, but what it does suggest is that potentially they just, ha- they don't have the optimal, um, gene expression at the time of day when they need it. So if we can kind of shift those rhythms or supplement somehow those, um, You know that energy need at the times of day when it's needed, then that might be beneficial.
2: Well, someone like a problem, someone that has a problem like this, are they dysregulated all day and all night, or there's certain times of day or night where they're more dysregulated than others?
0: Yeah, they would probably be dysregulated more. uh, Well, throughout the day, but a lot of our studies were suggesting that there's a lot more changes that go on at night. So. You know, a lot of the other genes that that have been previously described as being different in schizophrenia, when you really look at, at, you know, people who died during the day and people who died during the night, then it seems like a lot of those gene expression changes are really driven by the people who died at night, which suggests that there's really, their brains are more different at night than they are during the day. And so, in addition to these mitochondrial-related changes, you know, there's changes in, in GABAergic transmission-related genes, glutamatergic transmission-related genes. So, this all suggests that they're, especially in the, in the cortical regions, which are more involved in cognition, that it's probably going to be worse at night.
2: Across all these conditions, is the disruption similar or is it very different? You know, are some of the conditions, do they create opposite disruptions that would help you maybe study what's going on? Or is there yeah. no apparent... Pattern.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what we're we're doing now, where we're we're sequencing from several different diseases, and we do find, for example, that when we look at the striatal regions and look at people who have psychosis versus people with bipolar disorder who don't have psychosis, we see very different patterns, and so it suggests that there's something about psychosis that's really different in in those striatal regions versus people who don't have psychosis. And then when we're also looking at our, our subjects with major depression, you know, the changes that we see with them are very different than what we see with schizophrenia, for example. So we do think that there's going to be, you know, once we have all this data analyzed, some very distinct gene expression profiles that go along with either the disease or perhaps some of the clinical features, these diseases like psychosis,
2: which can cut across multiple diseases. Yeah, okay. Are you at a point now where you're able to offer any insight, or is it too early? You haven't been able to have enough data or analyze it enough?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're still in pretty early days. But one of the things that we did find with psychosis that was really interesting is that the the dorsal striatal region, so the caudate and putamen, which are involved in in a lot of different things, and, and it's where antipsychotic drugs really work the most is in these these regions. In terms of rhythms, it seems like people with psychosis have this abnormal sort of synchronization or you know this coming together of these two regions in terms of their rhythms which people wouldn't normally have and we don't know if that's because of something to do with psychosis itself where um, you know perhaps there's something with their dopaminergic system which is what feeds into the striatum there's, you know, the theory, uh, dopamine theory of of psychosis for a long time has been that there's too much dopamine in the striatum. um, And that's why antipsychotic drugs are blocking dopamine receptors. That perhaps that like surge of dopamine is kind of synchronizing these regions in a a sort of inappropriate way. Or it could be that the antipsychotic medications that they're taking are also affecting these rhythms and kind of creating this situation where these two regions are really um, functioning in a way that, timing-wise that they don't normally do. So that's one of the interesting things we've found with psychosis. But it, well, it's a little early with our some of our other studies comparing major depression and, and other subjects with bipolar disorder without psychosis.
2: I know I keep going back to sleep. Forgive me one more time. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think this is pretty common. Like if I have to get up tomorrow and there's something really important I have to do, if I have to get up early, whatever it is, it's hard for me to sleep. So they're... Yeah. It seems like an emotional state is affecting right. my sleep big time. Can yeah. anything be learned from that where it's not necessarily a disorder, but you have a look at gene expression in someone that's really worried versus someone yeah. that's you know it's just another day and they have, they can sleep in and they can relax and because it seems yeah. powerful enough just to, that emotional state to completely change sleep,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, certainly that's, I mean, thought to be due to adrenaline, you know, norepinephrine, epinephrine, you know, that whole system and tied more to anxiety really than anything else. I know I'm that, that, we, I'm that way too. If I have to get up really early in the morning for something important, it's like I can't sleep because I'm so worried about trying to making sure I get up. So yeah, I think that's pretty common. And and I think that's fairly well understood in terms of, you know, it just being sort of this, you know, anxiety about, about what you need to do. I don't know how exactly that would be studied other than again, just doing something in the blood or periphery in living people, you know, maybe also doing some brain scans or something like that. But, but yeah, that's, that's definitely something that's very common that a lot of people experience.
2: Oh, good. Well, what's the best way for people to learn about more, learn more about your research? Where can they go?
0: So they can go to my website, and so if you just Google Colleen McClung um, University of Pittsburgh, you can find our website. Uh, you can also find out more about our center. I didn't really talk about our center for Adolescent Reward Rhythms and Sleep, where we're we're studying how sleep disruption and circadian rhythm disruption in adolescents specifically, which they have a lot of this, but it contributes it, it contributes to. Uh, vulnerability for substance use disorders. And so you can also look up our center. It's the CARS, C-A-R-R-S,
2: um, and University of Pittsburgh uh, to learn more I, about those studies. I run one of those centers with my three teenage kids informally. Yeah, uh, Where <laughs> every night I have to say, go to sleep already.
0: Yeah, yeah. Teenagers have this normal biological shift. So that's one of the things we didn't really talk about. It's You know, circadian rhythms change with age also, where... You know, they have this normal biological shift to being more of a night owl, but then they have to get up really early to go to school. And so this creates this social jet lag and sleep restriction, sleep deprivation, which is really bad for them. Uh, so, you know, we've been involved in trying to change school start times and things like that as well at the policy level, um, but also trying to understand at the biological level, like what is that doing to their brain? What is that that sleep and circadian disruption? On a daily basis, doing to their brain, and how does that contribute to risk?
2: Well, very good. Colleen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting. And um, thank you for being patient with my questions and, <laughs> you know, gently guiding me back to your research. So I appreciate you being here.
0: No problem. I know sleep is, is really intriguing. A lot of people are very interested in it.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.